Hey everyone, if you enjoy the show, help us keep it going. We have a new partnership with Chess King, a training package that has a chess engine, a large database, instructive puzzles, and a beautiful design. And for a limited time, if you go to chess-king.com, use the coupon code BREAKFAST at checkout to get Chess King for only $49 or Chess King Pro for $99. So both a great deal and you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. Thanks. Yeah, I want to wear some flip-flops. Fine, big deal. This is Fabiano Caruana, and you're listening to The Full English Breakfast with Lawrence Trent and Stephen Gordon. This is episode number 19 of The Full English Breakfast. I'm Macaulay Peterson. We are on the ground in Reykjavik. It's open season. Bundesliga news. Malcolm Payne will have a rant, maybe. Yes. And with me, as always, International Master Lawrence Trent and Grandmaster Stephen Gordon. I'm so happy, guys. I'm so happy to be back. I'm happier. We missed you. The Bundesliga weekend, yeah, and it just got back. Well, the fans are happy. The full English breakfast is reunited in force. Are you happy? I'm happy. I'm whole again. <laughs> first it's time for pub talk so welcome back steven let's start with you you just got off a plane from germany tell us about the bundesliga our team my team is trier and we're partnered with baden baden so we play the matches we play the same weekends as baden baden and they have the big one against Werder bremen that was on the the saturday and they're the best two teams in the league so you know big match up big names Big players turning out. We were all uh, graced by the presence of the world champion this weekend. He turned up on the top board for Baden-Baden. And, uh, yeah, big match against Bremen. And they managed to pull it off in the end. They scraped through, I hear. Yeah, it was tight. On paper, it looks like a bit of a dull match. There were seven draws. And uh, and Mickey Adams managed to be the hero once again. I think he, he, won a, he won a vital game last year against Werder Bremen, against Matt Shane. But... Uh, yeah, he, he did the business again this time. But there were some fantastic games. Um, one in particular that listeners should check out is the game between Peter Heiner Nielsen and Tommy Nieback, where Nielsen, he gave a rook on one move and then a rook on the next move. It was just unbelievable. Oh, yeah, it was a draw, but it was an uh, awesome game. Hold that thought. We're going to do something we've never done before and bring in someone new for Pub Talk. Joining us on the line from... I'm in London this morning. ...is international master and international organizer, Malcolm Payne. Oh, hello. Hi, Macaulay. Hi, Stephen. Uh, I, I never get a hello anymore. This is great. <laughs> I thought you might be there, but it was almost impossible. I've never heard you so quiet. <laughs> well, I'm waiting for my moment, the moment to pounce. Excellent. But uh, you seem to think highly of uh, Stephen's play this weekend. Oh, it was, uh, well, I, I, I was watching his game. I actually was watching his game instead of watching the football. That's how good it was. And, wow. uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I did enjoy it. It was a very nice pawn sacrifice. And after about 21 moves, it was already huge. And 28 moves, the guy resigned. Brilliant. Very good stuff for chess columns as well. I can only fit two quick games in the Daily Telegraph, so when somebody plays one, that's that's a great joy, you know. 
Well, sometimes when a game、uh, does not go so smoothly, players have the urge to punch something like the wall or a concrete pillar in Vasily Ivanchuk's case. Yes. But ever since I read that you were providing some commentary for chess boxing,、uh, I thought this has got to be a, a topic we discuss on the pub talk. Oh yeah. So、uh, I understand there was there was a match recently at Scotland Nightclub in near Kings Cross Station. And Kings Cross Station is right in the heart of London. It's one of the biggest railway stations. Uh, and the Scholar Nightclub is—I wouldn't exactly say a landmark, but it's this huge building on a corner, and、uh, everybody knows it. And it takes about a thousand people. And、uh, we had a, a card with four bouts, including a,、uh, a title fight. Andy the Rock Costello from、uh, from Exeter in the southwest of England, who actually is a, a former cage fighter,、uh, and na- now he, now he runs a gym. Uh, he's, he's also an expert on a certain kind of martial art,、um, but he's not that strong a chess player. So he's probably about fifteen hundred. Although he's way, way better than he used to be when when I first started doing chess boxing a couple of years ago.、Um, and he was up against、uh, Nikolai the Siberian Express Sajin, who is actually a very decent player, but not that much of a boxer. The, the way chess boxing works, if if you've never seen it, is you you have this boxing ring, and at the beginning of the at the beginning of the contest, they put a chessboard. Uh, in the in the boxing ring, in this case there were eleven rounds, which is a full length chess boxing match, which is six rounds of chess and five of boxing. So you start off with with chess, and each of the chess rounds went on for four minutes, and each of the boxing rounds go on for three, and the players each have twelve minutes on the clock. So it's 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 quite blitz like, if you like. And essentially, the the guy who's good at boxing is hoping to knock his opponent out. The guy who's good at chess is hoping hoping to deliver mate, and. Overall, I'd say the chess tends to be a bit more influential. What is it like? I mean, they're playing chess in the ring too, but you have the, the fans cheering like at a boxing match. The atmosphere match. is sensational. This time round, we had、um, Sky Television, a big satellite channel,、um, actually paid for a production company to come and actually video the boxing as well as the chess. So there were boxing commentators in a separate kind of booth, but the, the crowd don't hear them. So when the boxing is on, you just see you know you just see the guys beating the hell out of each other. When the chess is on. Then you've got these two guys in the ring under under the under the spotlights. Now they both wear headphones, to which into which we kind of play something like Metallica as loud as we possibly can.、Um, and this is not actually to destroy their their concentration at chess, although it surely can't be beneficial.、Um, but it's actually to stop them listening to me. Uh huh. Because you're getting piped out over the loudspeakers. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for the pub talk. Let's move on to a little bit of news. Why doesn't Andrew Paulson want to sponsor chess boxing? Well, he was there. He was there on Saturday, actually. He, he, he quite enjoyed it, but I think he's got his hands full with fee day. Right. Well, to bring our listeners up to speed, there was a bidding process for the next World Championship cycle, chiefly between a bid from Bulgaria and one from Azerbaijan. But at the last moment, neither of them、uh, was awarded the bid, and、uh, an American. Businessman working in Russia swooped in with his new limited liability company called Agon or Agon, and came up with、uh, enough good ideas and enough money to、uh, be awarded a shot in the dark, organizing a Grand Prix and candidates and World Championship cycle,、uh, with the first one to start in London. And you know something about London、yeah. and chess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've actually given him effectively the rights for everything forever. I mean, it's you know they really have. Gone a little overboard, I think. I mean, he's you know he's a he's a very interesting guy. He's a very successful guy with a great track record.、Uh, well, a great track record. I mean, he's tried. He's an entrepreneur. He's tried lots of things. Some some have worked spectacularly, and some haven't. And he's got some interesting ideas. But what they've actually done is just decided 
you know, that he's the answer to all their prayers and giving him everything. Whereas, you know, if it had been me, I might have given him some of it. And then if he did well, given him more. But, you know, they, they obviously have enormous confidence in him for whatever reason. Well, the first thing that I questioned was the pronouncements about holding the series of tournaments in major European capitals, which on its face sounds great. But of course... Well, it seems impossible that there is anything more than the idea in terms of having actual organizers, a location, a concrete budget, you know, any kind of a, of a plan other than just let's do a tournament in Madrid or let's do a tournament in Paris. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've had, you know, a couple of very long discussions with him and, OK, quite a lot of that we've agreed is confidential. But, I mean, I could tell you without giving anything away, you know, that is just, you know, that that's just a wish list. Right. <laughs> you know, when you see that's just, a, you know, that's what he'd like to do because he thinks uh, that those are good places to hold chess events in. And he's right. Sure. Um, but, but, but there isn't absolutely nothing concrete in place yet. I mean, you, you could ask any of the players and they'll tell you they haven't got a candidate's contract yet, but that doesn't mean that he isn't working very hard on it. I know he's working very hard on it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's easy for observers of FIDE over time to be very skeptical, possibly even ridiculing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, I have it on reasonably good authority that, that, that Andrew Paulson has put some money behind it. You know, he's handed over some money to FIDE. So, I mean, I'm, I'm working on the assumption, having met him, that he, do- he certainly is very serious about running the event in London. Ha- having a tournament in London is not easy. Uh, anyone who's ever talked to me about how I, how I, how I created the classic will, will know that I went to visit 47 venues. 47. Before I found the right one. I got this spreadsheet with all of them and all my notes. <laughs> so it's not, it's not that easy, you know, to find a venue to host a, to host a chess event that's actually available for 10 days, such as the classic, never mind 21 days, which is the length of time you need to run a candidates tournament. Right. I, I think it's going to be extremely hard for him to find that, you know, he might find a place, but because he's got such exacting standards and because he wants to do it in a particular way, I'm really worried that he won't be able to find a place that really suits what he's trying to do. And I, I think that one of the reasons he wants it in London is it'll be a great showcase for potential sponsors. So he has to get it absolutely right. Right, because part of the whole premise, this is all predicated on it becoming self-sufficient. In other words, there being profits from these events. Absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, in a sense, even if you're putting in a lot of money to try to get the first one, to get a great venue, to have everything run smoothly, that also makes it much harder to turn a profit, to be in the black. I'm sure. It's a typical promoter's gamble, isn't it, really? I mean, you know, he wants to be able to sell this. And in order to sell it, he's got to create, he's got to create something. You mean Tashkent and Chelyabinsk aren't at the top of uh, Intel and Microsoft's uh, <laughs> wish list? I think I wouldn't be giving anything away <laughs> if I said that those are sort of legacy kind of commitments that FIDE already has. Well, my other question for you was, uh, well, there was a, an interview published recently by Ray Keane, apparently a um, result of having a couple of meetings with Andrew. Mm. Does this mean that Ray Keane is going to be yet again organizing a world championship-ish event? <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out, um, but I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I'm sure that if I was Andrew Paulson, I'd be talking to absolutely everybody I could, and I think that's what he's doing. I don't know who he'll use uh, ultimately. Uh, I can just tell you that at the moment, I'm certainly, you know, don't have it in my diary. When do you have to make some decisions about the London Classic, roughly? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to decide that in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, fingers crossed. Thanks very much for filling in some of the blanks. Pleasure. Uh, I always enjoy coming on the full English. Well, we've gotten some news 
about a potential candidates tournament. I had a little piece of anti-news, which was uh, it was announced by Chestum that according to a Chinese news service, the long-awaited match between Judith Polgar and Ho Yifan was scheduled to take place in China. Only the next day, Judith Polgar... <laughs> announced on Twitter that if that were the case, she's not aware of it, having not had any such negotiation or agreed to anything. And uh, so, yeah, one wonders where this news came from, but uh, it certainly uh, doesn't help the uh, the credibility of of Chestum to announce something like that and then have to retract it the next day. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, we're going to have this tournament. She'll, she'll, she'll find out about it in due course. Don't worry about that. Well, I mean, the thing is, it holds a lot of significance. It's... Uh, it would be a symbolic match, and I think, uh, be it with the World Championship on the line or not, eight games, no matter what time control, is something that both players would take very seriously, and uh, especially Judith would not want to lose. I don't know about you, Steve, but I think she's clearly got potential to get to, to, get to the dizzy heights of Judith Polgar, um, and probably the only woman currently in the world with any sort of chance to do that. Well, definitely, yeah. I mean, she's uh, she's playing some really great chess, and uh, I mean, again, in uh, recently in Reykjavik, she's she's at the top of these big opens, and she's fighting for the first prize. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, she could break into a super tournament sometime soon. Yes, in fact, Ho uh, in the last round had a chance with uh, White against Fabiano Caruana to to tie for first place. Uh, but uh, Caruana was able to defend with a draw and uh, ended up winning clear first. And uh, in the process, uh, managed to vault himself into number six on the world rankings, surpassing Nakamura by uh, a couple of points. And, um, well, we threw this um, tweet from Nakamura out, up on our Facebook page for your comments and got some, some interesting responses. Recall that Nakamura was... Uh, I don't know if he would call it complaining, but at least uh, suggesting that uh, that there's a qualitative difference between gaining rating points in a open tournament like Reykjavik and gaining rating points in a uh, closed super tournament like Vikonze. And obviously there is some difference, but isn't the point of the ELO system that it's uh, it's an objective measure of your playing strength and regardless of your opposition, if you're playing weaker opposition, you have to have a higher score to gain points. Well, if, if players believe that, then why don't they go and uh, play in these Opens and go and go and win the points? You know, there's significant risk to Caruana playing in an Open like this. If he has one or two bad results, then he drops points and he may drop out of the top ten, you know? But that would seem to go against Nakamura's point oh, yeah. in favor of it because he, had, for example, himself has played in Open tournaments and lost points. So it's obviously not that it's somehow easier to gain points in an open tournament because you have to be much more careful, uh, you know, not to slip up. And even if you draw, you can lose points against most of your opponents. I think Hikaru on this occasion is just, you know, a bit frustrated with the fact that Fabiano's obviously had this pretty rapid ascent up the list. And you've got to bear in mind as well, I mean, it's not as if he just plays open tournaments, you know. He was at Vicenza. He was at Reggio Emilia with Nakamura. They've played both of those with Nakamura, right? right? Exactly. Well, okay, is it is it aimed at Caruana or is it just a just a general comment? Well, of course it is. Well, he says after seeing people picking up rating points by beating weaker players, I'm convinced that chess ratings should be weighted like oh, in tennis. Okay. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So 
Yeah, okay. Anyone else uh, gaining rating points in, in Reykjavik? Uh, but uh, Caruana, the only one who's passing him on the rating list. Yeah, I, I think actually, like, Caruana takes a big risk with his rating, and if he picks up a few points in Reykjavik, fair play to him, you know, and that shouldn't, the, there shouldn't be any judgment on whether his rating's inflated by doing this or not. I, I think, uh, you know, the guy's shown in the in the top tournaments that he's a real deal. Well, comments on our Facebook page were mixed. Uh, David Wagel says, results matter, not rating points. Ratings are not exact, and to be the best, you have to beat everyone else. David Ullman says, Caruana is only higher rated because he rarely plays 2750-plus guys, uh, only tw- normal 2700-plus guys. <laughs> just, just those guys, yeah. yeah. Just the super <laughs> with a small s, GM. Yeah, and Zach uh, Kaufman uh, coming to Caruana's defense says, it's not as if it's easy to beat players who are uh, even under 2700, and that if you lose... Or draw, you end up losing points. So, Caruana does move to the number six spot, uh, which is uh, pretty impressive. And you can bet he'll be getting a lot more invitations to the super tournaments and seeing if he can uh, establish that rating in any event. While we're in uh, Reykjavik, we also asked our listeners uh, who they would like to hear from for our 60-second segment. And uh, one of the suggestions was uh, Ivan Shaparinov, who, of course, uh, in addition to being a strong grandmaster in his own right, uh, well-known uh, primarily for being the lead second of Veselin Topalov, uh, now and in his heyday as the world's number one player. The uh, first thing I asked uh, Ivan was uh, if he, like Topalov and his manager, Denialov, had in fact uh, uh, moved to Spain. Both Topolov and Denialov married Spanish women and uh, live in the Salamanca area. No, I'm uh, living in in Sofia now, mm-hmm. lately. Yeah. And uh, I never li- really lived in Spain, but just uh, because we were training uh, every day with Vesely, and that's why I was there. But, um, but I'm now back in... Sophie. You've sort of uh, had some periods of activity and some periods where you're more focusing on, on training. Is this now a period where mm-hmm. you're playing more yourself? No, I'm always um, constantly on uh, preparing and then, of course, to play. But uh, nowadays it's not so easy to find really good tournaments. So um, I'm just, uh, I just play like five, six tournaments per year, but um, the strongest ones. There's not big choice. And, what and in the, re- the rest of the time, I'm just uh, working. Working on, on your own game or working for... No, on my own game. Mm-hmm. Are you st- still in touch with, uh, with Veselin on a more friendly level about uh, uh, how to try to, to get back in shape himself? Uh, yeah, even uh, recently we're only in this friendship uh, relation because, um, okay, we just don't work like before. It's... Um, he also has family and everything, so it's um, not the same. But, uh, yeah, we, we just speak about all the things. So Just, um, okay, he's also a bit uh, out from the top. Uh, we just uh, concentrate on um, getting in shape again and things like this. Nothing nothing changed, just um, just now I'm more focusing on my play. I want to improve more, so this is, this is my priority now. Mm-hmm. Not uh, just help Veselin, but also just to improve. And uh, yeah, now I'm planning to play in the European. It's also in Plovdiv. It's in my city, so I'm, I was born there. So it's like um, at home. No? Your family is still in Plovdiv? 
Oh, yeah. You have a little bit of an advantage then. You can go have well, a, home, have a home huge advantage. Meal. I have a huge advantage, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's really nice to play at home. It's good. Well, uh, are you, uh, hope you're not planning to get married anytime soon. Uh, not, uh, not now, so I'm just concentrating on my career and that's it. I mean, this is things that, uh, they just happen. I mean, you can't plan this. So Cheparinov had his chances on the top boards, but in the end, uh, finishing in a tie for ninth place with six and a half points out of nine. Mm. Great player. Don't quite know what's happened, obviously, with... With his relationship with Topalov, he said, you know, they're, they're not like before. It's a bit different. Uh, Topalov's got married. Obviously, he's fallen a bit from the top of the chess world. So, uh, it'd be interesting to see if he can actually reach the 2700 levels. I think he got very close, but obviously a bit more work needs to be done. But clearly a very good player. It's a big task, isn't it, to uh, move the rating up once you've... He must have been around the 2650 level for some years now, but he'll have, a, like he says, a big advantage by playing in Bulgaria and the Europeans, and uh, hopefully we'll see a, a big performance from him. It sounds like he's not quite getting the invitations that he would like, uh, expressing a, you know, a problem finding top-level events to play in. But how difficult is it for these guys around 2660? I mean, there's players who are 2730 who don't get a look in anymore. I mean... For example, Michael Adams barely plays any closed tournaments anymore, and his rating must be around 2740 at the moment. And there are plenty of names you can pick out of the bag and say the same thing about. It's really tough for these guys. There's just too many good players to be able to accommodate everyone. You've got to stand out somehow, you know? Get a rating like Caruana and you'll get talked about, but otherwise you're one of a, a great bunch of players. Well, getting back to Reykjavik, Simon Williams, of course, doing some commentary there. Uh, and uh, the top finish among the uh, the Brits was uh, Gawain Jones, who came in with a, uh, a tie for second place, picking up some points, and also a uh, popular uh, contender on our Facebook page for an interview. So I sat down with Gawain uh, after the last round for a brief chat. You pretty much had a phenomenal tournament, as it turns out, despite the, the mishap against Boris. Yeah, I almost managed, well, 10 out of 9, and then uh, my only loss was a pretty horrible game by my point. I played a crazy opening, which I'm not sure was totally sound, followed by very good play, and then I totally collapsed and from a winning endgame managed to lose it, even losing knight and pawn versus knight at the end. But I needed to keep with my instinct. The whole point of G4 was after to be taken to H5 and get another pass pawn and then give up my knight. And then I got cold feet and my head just refused to calculate any variations at all and I panicked and, yeah, it all went terribly wrong. <laughs> just too exhausted with the two rounds a day there. Even with that loss, then coming back with the two wins, you end up with quite a nice uh, performance. Yeah, no, I'm very happy with it. I lost uh, so many points in New Zealand in my last tournament. So I hope I've gained some of them back here at least. Yeah, I saw that on your on your blog. You've logged quite a lot of miles in the last month. Yeah, I was counting uh, how many flights I'd had this year about a month ago, and it was in double figures very comfortably. So wow. probably nearing 20 flights already this year. Actually, something I've been meaning to, to ask you about for a while was on your uh, blog when you did a post about the London Chess Classic. 
and uh, one of your readers wrote this very long comment with a number of questions that you simply said, <laughs> gee, I hope I'll have time to answer some of those questions. At this oh, yeah. Uh, I still hope I'll get time to answer some of those questions eventually. <laughs> well, let me ask you, one of those questions yeah. was uh, about uh, the London Classic, since you've played in the, the Open a couple of times, but uh, at least as of this tournament, you pick up another 10 points, so you're now uh, pretty uh, sizably ahead of, of uh, David Howell. Are you hoping that to play in London Classic next Yeah, time? well, of course. I'd love to play it. It's such a great tournament and playing all those top players. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just waiting and seeing at the moment. But, well, in general, you uh, have been very busy with not only playing in London and then the New Zealand road trip, but also the Bundesliga. Yeah, I've started playing Bundesliga this year as well. And, uh, yeah, I'm not at home very often at the moment. How do you like that uh, schedule, living out of a suitcase? Um, well, it's good fun visiting new places, but then it gets very tiring and you just miss being at home and miss like, home-cooked meals. And So, yeah, I'm looking forward to having some break. I don't like very much break because I seem, tend to get rusty very quickly and uh, my chest deteriorates, but I'm close to playing too much at the moment. So. Yeah. Well, they say winning the last round oftentimes colours your uh, view on the whole event. <laughs> yeah, but after my loss to... Uh, I just wanted to go home at that point. I was devastated uh, how I'd managed to not only not win, but not even draw that. But then, yeah, I managed to get a couple of wins and feel happy again. And uh, Yeah, I've enjoyed the tournament. It's a very nice-looking venue, this half. Um, it's a bit noisy, but I think that next year they're going to go to a different room. Uh, so it should be quieter, and it's, yeah, it's nice here. I really enjoy Reykjavik. It's quite similar to New Zealand in a lot of ways. Small island, volcanic. Uh, even the people are quite similar. So I've been here three times uh, in the past year. Three times in the past year? Yeah. Wow. I played um, Icelandic League as well. So I came in October, and then I played the tournament last year. Uh, I'm playing the European straight after this. So, uh, Have you been to Bulgaria before? Or? Yeah, I've played in Plovdiv, Plovdiv. Um, a oh, few years ago. For, yeah, the last Europeans. can't remember how I did. So probably not very well. <laughs> Got Wayne Jones, friend of the show. Friend of the show, friend of ours as well. I mean, I, I, I hung out with him in Bamrati. His rise over the past few years has just been absolutely great, great fringless chess, and he fully deserves it because he's a great lad, he puts the work in, he's always had big talent, and it's finally paying off, and I think Sue, his partner, has got a big role in this because she's been really helpful away from the chessboard as well, you know, getting him really fit and being there from, you know, to, to support him psychologically, and I think that's been great seeing them two grow together as well, so it's I don't know about you, Steve. I mean, I think he should should be playing in London this year. I don't see any any reason why he shouldn't. To be honest, well, it'd be it'd be awesome. I mean, it'd be it'd be a shame to not see David there if they could bring another player in because there's five, maybe six English guys who'd, who'd love to be playing there. I mean, if Sa- if Sadler's going to make a comeback, then you know he he has to be put in the frame as well. But all these guys, if they could get into this London tournament, it'd be awesome. But yeah, if there's four spots, then Gawain is definitely putting himself in with a shout of getting one of these spots to play. If you if you get your rating up to 2650, as I'm sure it's it must be coming close to that now, then he's got to be considered in a big way to to be playing in London. I'm in awe of it, really, because uh, there was a time when we were we were both at a similar sort of rating and making the same moves, and 
you know, I went, I, I went being Mr. Sensible, going to uni, and Gawain's really giving it a go with the chess, and it's it's great to see that he's been successful with it, and I, I'm really pleased for him. He's also got the hunger, Gawain. He's got the hunger to yeah, yeah, to get better, and there's no reason why he can't get above twenty six fifty and start looking at the twenty seven hundred realms. Obviously, that is another big jump, but you know, if he con- continues working like like he has been, I don't see any reason why. He yeah, shouldn't. I don't. I don't think that he's going to be hitting a wall anytime soon. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. He's massively talented it's just about putting the work in and doing what he's been doing and not getting too caught up about you know what his rating might be he doesn't seem to doesn't seem to worry about those things so yeah looks great for now let's see how he goes with it well you can find some photos from Reykjavik on our Facebook page that's facebook.com forward slash the FEB all right Last up, a bit of chess etiquette from Reykjavik. Wanted to ask you guys about. Going into the last round, there was uh, an Icelandic international master who needed to play an opponent rated 2360 and beat them, I should add, in order to qualify for a grandmaster norm. But unfortunately, uh, the way that the pairings worked out, he was set to play someone significantly lower rated. Now, first question is, in that kind of a case, is it acceptable for organizers to tweak the pairing to get him the rating that he wants to have a shot at the norm, or is that unacceptable? I always assumed it was acceptable. Right, I'm, I differ there. Really? I thought that a pairing list should just be done based on the rules and regulations of how the pairing should be done. You know, you don't, you don't change them around. What if his opponent, what if his likely opponent needed to play someone else to make a norm, and they get paired against him. Right, there's the sort of John Stuart Mill uh, philosophical argument that, you know, it would be one thing if you did no harm, but you could conceivably screw up somebody else by jiggling yeah. the pairings in such a way. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. also, in this case, there was a very large difference. I mean, uh, we're not talking about, like, one person up or down on the pairing list, you know, a few points here or there, but something like 80 or 100 points even. So it would have been have a clearly be um, imprecise pairing to put him against a 23-60. Imprecise or, uh, being diplomatic, illegal, also uh, Unfortunately, it's, it's probably not right to do something like that, but, yeah, it's got to be so frustrating for the player. Well, part two. As a result of the organizer's standing on principle and refusing to change the pairings, even for one of their own, this international master simply did not show up to his last round game and was forfeited in the last round. His opponent was there. He was playing, of course, a strong master player uh, who uh, could not get a game then in the last round. Uh... Well, (laughs) I mean, he probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, I would have turned up for the game. The organizer is not doing that. He's not trying to rile someone and say, oh, I'm the boss, this is how it's done, sort of thing. It's just the rules, isn't it? If you run a tournament and you're told to play by the rules, you've got to play by the rules, and uh, that's just, it's very unfortunate for for the guy, but I don't think it's right to um, protest in this way. No, I agree. I mean, one of my GM norms that I didn't get was because my opponent didn't turn up. Um, In the first round, they didn't repair me, uh, and as a result, I only played eight players. But when I won the tournament, I played over 2,600, played all the necessary GMs and IMs, but I'd only played eight rated games rather than nine. 
So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm totally against the idea of not turning it. He's got to realise that if the rules are, and they clearly state, that you're not allowed to tweak the pairings, then fair enough, that's just unlucky. You've got to get over it, and make a good performance, and then try and get a GM norm in the next tournament. That's just the way it is. Well, on that lighthearted note, we are about out of time. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who's been uh, participating on our Facebook page and donating to the show. You can always find us on the web at thefeb.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get it first. And you can also use the code BREAKFAST to get your own copy of the Chess King software the full English breakfast discount. Next time on the full English breakfast, Lawrence Trent and I debate the merits of the ECU's new dress code policy. You know, you're not allowed to go to the board smelling. Don't get me wrong, I fucking hate playing against a smelly bastard. And Stephen Gordon counts the number of F bombs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait, what's the line again? 